One of my earliest memories as a child going on vacation was to get into the car and drive three days from the frigid Arctic winter of Ottawa, Canada and into the glorious sunshine of Sarasota, Florida, where for approximately one month in February, we would receive reprieve from the cold, reprieve from the snow and the ice, from the bitter winter, that were you to expose yourself to it without proper clothing, somewhat akin to what's required to walk upon the moon, you would, in very short order, be reduced to a frozen corpse. And one of the first things that we would do when we would enter into the glories of warm weather would be to get into the pool and swim outdoors in February. And what we would do is just glorying in the reality that we were able to do that. And I remember as a child, one of the first memories I have, one of the most vivid I have from my childhood is wading out into that pool, rushing there the moment we arrived, and not only swimming, but running around in the water. Because unlike some of the hotels that we would stay at on the drive down, this was actually a heated pool. So this was the closest thing to heaven that I had ever experienced. And one time, in my euphoria, I got a little too close to the slope that leads down into the deep end. And before I was a very strong swimmer, I found myself not only on that slope, but rapidly descending that slope. And very quickly, in a portion of the pool that was way deeper than I had any business swimming in. And if you've ever had an experience in water where you don't know how to swim and you find yourself in a place where you can't touch the bottom, you know that terror that grips you. It's a memory that you never forget. And um, I don't recall who pulled me out of the water. Evidently someone did, because I'm here. I don't know how the story ended. Apparently I've had that memory blocked out. But as I approach a text like Romans 9, I find myself feeling kind of the same sensation of sliding down into the deep end, sliding down into something that is far deeper than I can rest my feet on the floor of, something vastly beyond my comprehension. And so what I'd like to do this morning and over the next several weeks is invite you into the deep end of the pool. I'm not going to ask you to swim there if you're not comfortable. I'm going to ask you to hold on to the life preservers that we provide, but I want you just to feel what it's like to be in this kind of place, contemplating things that are vastly beyond what our minds can comprehend. Not so that you will be afraid and not so that you will be confused, but so that you will be completely consumed in awe of the spectacular revelation of God in the chapter that we're going to study this morning. We're going to look specifically at Romans chapter 9, verses 19 through 24. 
Uh, This is really part three of a multi-part series that we're calling Children of the Promise. Last week, we looked at the first of our four points, and that is the mercy of God. Today, we're going to look at the providence of God and the patience of God, and then next week, Lord willing, the love of God. But as we study these two ideas this morning, the providence of God and the patience of God, we once again find ourselves listening to Paul's defense of the very character of the justice of God. And the apostle has basically harnessed his formidable intellect and being guided by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit brings us in to the deep end of God's providence. Looking here at verses 19 through 24, we have to appreciate what Paul is saying to us. And in order to do that, we reach back just a little bit further into verse 18 to really get the context for the message Because verse 18 says something that is going to cause us to have a natural reaction. God told us that he loved Jacob and that he hated Esau. He chose descendants of one to be the servants of the other. And he made that choice without any consideration for anything that they did. But he made the decision through sovereign grace alone. And that kind of statement causes people to ask ethical questions. To make matters worse, even if you just consider the individuals alone, Jacob was anything but righteous. Even after he was born clinging to the heel of his brother. In fact, Jacob is presented to us on the pages of Genesis as a mama's boy who made a mean lentil stew and stayed around the house under the watchful eye of the first helicopter parent. When his brother Esau was exhausted and starving, instead of helping his brother, Jacob took full advantage of him and using a method of extortion, robbed him of his inheritance and all the authority that came from being the firstborn. As if that were not enough, when Isaac, his father, was over a hundred years old, his wife Rebecca and her favorite son Jacob hatched a scheme to steal even the blessing away from Esau. Using lies and premeditated deception, the imposter made his blind father think that he was Esau and cheated him out of the blessing that is given in Genesis 27, 27 to 29. It says this, so he came near and kissed him and Isaac smelled the smell of his garments thinking it was Esau and blessed him and said, see the smell of my son is as the smell of a field that Yahweh has blessed. May God give you of the dew of heaven and of the fatness of the earth and plenty of grain and wine. Let people serve you and nations bow down to you. The Lord over your brothers. Be Lord over your brothers. And may your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you and blessed be everyone who blesses you. You see, Isaac intended that blessing for Esau. But God meant it for Jacob. So in some mysterious way, even the sin of Jacob is used in the end to bring glory to God. 
Now, in essence, that's really the way that God operates. You know, all the sins and the treachery that Jacob did just extol the mercy of God in his life. Jacob was the one who, before he had done anything good or evil, and he did plenty of evil. Jacob was the one who was chosen, not because of his works, but because of sovereign grace. That's why I love the name Jacob. It reminds me that God has mercy on whom he will have mercy. We're all Jacobs. But God sent Jesus to be the righteousness that turns a Jacob into an Israel. And he's done that for all of you who have put your faith in him today. Isn't it glorious that God takes wretches and saves them? Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a basically good person like me. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a what? Wretch. Are you a wretch? You were. Sometimes we still act like one. But isn't it glorious that God came to save wretches? I'm glad he didn't decide that there was a certain minimal effective amount of righteousness required in every human being before he would qualify them for redemption. Instead, he said, you come with nothing in your hand. You come with nothing but the need to be redeemed. You offer nothing but your sin in return. He takes that, pays for it completely in the sacrifice of Christ and then clothes you in his righteousness, the only righteousness by which you will be judged. So that's essentially the argument that Paul made in the passage that we looked at last week. So he says, back in verse 14, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for your, this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. And that last part of verse 18 is what launches us into the text this morning. Paul concludes by saying, God shows mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. What does that mean? How is that fair. These are questions that are easier to avoid. One of the things that we explain in our members meeting is that we are a, a church that is defined not by its programs. We're not a, a program-driven church. Uh, we, we only focus on what the reformers call the ordinary means of grace. We're an ordinary means of grace kind of church, meaning that we just take what the Bible says we're to do as we assemble, and that is the systematic expositional preaching of God's word, worship and song and prayer, practicing the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper, believing in meaningful membership of this corporate body, and encouraging one another to love and good deeds that we might use our gifts to the maturity of the saints. And one of the things that systematic expository preaching means is that when you begin a book, you're committed to finishing the book. 
And it means that at times you are presented with chapters in that book that maybe in your flesh you would rather have avoided. But praise be to God that he has inspired his word and he's instructed us to teach it, instructed us to hear it, instructed us to believe it. And he's given pastors by his own special grace a desire to explain it to the best of their ability for the edification of the saints. And so we find ourselves here this morning picking up from last week, looking at his mercy, and this week looking at his providence in verses 19 through 21, and then his patience in verses 22 through 24. Just so you're familiar with it, look back at Romans 9, 19 through 21. Here's the question. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault, or, or who can resist his will? But who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Well, what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of one lump or the same lump one vessel for honored use and another for dishonorable use? In anticipation of the very objection, the apostle gets to it first. He says, why, in verse 19, does he still find fault? And why, in verse 20, have you made me like this? Why do you find fault? I mean, am I some kind of robot? Did you just program me and then set me loose in the world? How can you blame me for sin? A question like that, and here's the challenge with it, it really challenges God's justice. It questions whether or not he is fair. It calls into question his honor. It asks, was God fair in hardening Pharaoh? Or did he force his will upon Pharaoh, who might otherwise have wanted to do what is right? Or did he make Pharaoh do it and then punish Pharaoh for doing it? Well, we go so far as to say that the Apostle James was wrong, that God doesn't tempt anyone to sin. How do we understand this? Well, on one level, to ask the question, if you impugn God's character, is something that should cause you to put your hand over your mouth. But if you're asking the question instead to try to understand the nature of his choices, then I think there is some room in Scripture to investigate it, and that's what I'd like to do this morning. The truth is that Pharaoh also hardened his own heart. If you go back and you look at the story of Pharaoh, it is not just God choosing to harden the heart of an innocent man who would otherwise have done right. You see God finally allowing Pharaoh in his hardness of heart to remain there. Pharaoh was an arrogant and a wicked man. He was bent on his own glory. He never ceased to do evil. The same was true of the Egyptians, as Samuel says. It was both Pharaoh and the Egyptians that repeatedly hardened their own hearts against God and his people, 1 Samuel 6.6. 6. God doesn't harden soft hearts. He seals hearts that are already hard, leaving them in their rebellion. That's the picture of the wicked in Psalm 73 when Asaph writes in Psalm 73, 18 to 22, truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. The, 
the writer says, when I was complaining about how the ungodly seemed to prosper, I was like a, an ignorant animal before you. I was asking questions I should not have been asking. That's the response that causes Paul to say, who are you to reply against God? But honest biblical inquiry, that is something that's encouraged. But let's continue. You might say in protest, what about my free will? That's a reasonable question, especially from the perspective of human beings, at least those who have asked for so long this question that it's considered reasonable. And I think the answer is pretty simple. We're going to talk about it this morning. What about free will? Well, the answer is that you do have a will. Of course you do. You have a will. You have volition. You have desires. And you act upon them all the time. In fact, you are a decision-making machine. And from the moment you get up in the morning to the moment you drift off to sleep, you are constantly exercising your will. The issue is not whether or not man has a will, but whether or not man has an autonomous, free will, independent from God to do whatever he pleases regardless of providence. That's the question that's really being asked. And every person, while they do have a will, by God's own choosing, that will is either a slave to sin or a slave to righteousness. Yes, you have a will, but you have a will subjected to sin or a will subjected to righteousness. You are not free. You are a slave, the Bible says, a slave to sin or a slave to righteousness. In fact, this is what Paul says when he unpacks this for us back in Romans 6, 16 to 18. Paul says, do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed and having been set free from sin have become slaves of righteousness. That's a glorious truth, isn't it? He says you've been set free from sin. Not to be free indeed to do whatever you want, but to be a slave now to righteousness and as a result of your slavery to righteousness, you're actually able in obedience to Christ, to follow the standard, the word that is set before you in the scriptures and to do so with joy. Now, let me hasten to clarify one more time, as I always have to. It doesn't mean that those good deeds that you do are going to increase your odds of being accepted by God because he accepts you not on the basis of any deeds that you have done before or after you were a Christian, but only upon the deeds that were done by Christ and his obedience. It is only his righteousness that is ever judged. However, even as a wretch, you're still able to glorify God by doing his will because you become a slave to righteousness. So do you have your own will? Yes. Is it free? No. It's totally subjected to sin or graciously ruled by righteousness. As Spurgeon put it, free will I have often heard of, but I have never seen it. I have always met with will and plenty of it, 
but it has either been led captive by sin or held in the blessed bonds of grace. Another question goes even further then. Even if you accepted this reality, you may be tempted then to to ask God, why have you made me this way? Why have you done this to me? It's a question, and it's a question that crosses the line. This is where you're probably used to hearing the text explained. This is what you're used to hearing from preachers. This is the part where inquiry becomes inquisition. It challenges the character of God. There is nothing reasonable in it. There's no redeeming qualities found there. It is a fist being shaken at God. It's it's talking back to the Almighty. To ask these questions puts yourself in a place of judging and criticizing God. That's the part that you have to identify as sin. You don't do that. You don't ask why. It's none of our business why. God does what he chooses to do. God is the only being in the universe with free will. He exercises it according to his own holiness. The fact that we ask why only proves how condescending and foolish we can be. It's not a curious why. It's not a confused why. It's an accusatory why. It's a why of contempt. And so it's shut down immediately before the one asking the question goes far enough to exhaust God's willingness to strive with human arrogance and stupidity. But beloved, I want to remind you that Paul says this in the context of great grief. Paul doesn't take that verse, tie it to the end of a rope and beat the Romans with it. He doesn't say it with callous indifference to those who are questioning. He doesn't say it with rude, arrogant pride. Go back to the beginning of Romans 9. He says, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart for I could wish myself a curse that I myself were a curse and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. It's a broken-hearted theologian. It's a broken-hearted preacher. This is a man who says these tough words and, 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 and difficult doctrine through eyes that are blurred with tears over the fact that so many reject it. And as one who proclaims it on a regular basis, I I can tell you that there is a pain that's unknown to many when you stand before the same people week after week and you proclaim the same message time and again and some refuse to believe, refuse to receive it, still think somehow they're too sinful to be worthy or have delayed too long to be accepted or aren't able to carry that burden once they embrace it and yet over and over again the scripture says come and find your rest in that message. This is what Paul is calling you to. He's calling you to rest. Rest from your own ceaseless inquiry. Rest from trying to judge God and determine if he's just. Consider the arrogance of the interrogation of God. Paul says in verse 20, But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Who do you think you are? He says, You're a man. Don't darken counsel by words without knowledge. Will the one that is molded say, Talk back to the molder, to the one who is shaping it? He says, Look, human. 
You're a lump of dirt on the wheel. You don't get to say what you become. It's like the story of Job. Job 42, 1 to 6 says this, Then Job answered the Lord, after realizing that, that all of his defensive self-righteousness was meaningless, and that God was doing him no wrong, he answers back to, to Yahweh and he said, I, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear and I will speak. I will question you and you will make it known to me. He's quoting what God had said to him. And I heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Job says, I, I realize now, you're right. You are right to question me. You are right to say what you said to me, God. I hear what you're saying and I repent. I despise myself. <laughs> I put my hand over my mouth. Asking why like this is not an option. But it doesn't mean that we're not allowed to have questions. It doesn't mean we're not allowed to ask questions. It's not an effort to, to shut down all rational thought. In fact, clearly we're called by God to reason. We're called by God to think. We're created to think. We're created to search out knowledge and wisdom and the fear of God. And so he answers us for more clarification. Look at verse 21. He says, has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and the other for dishonorable use? Notice God's power. Notice God's providence. This is the evidence for the statement that we have no right to question God. If you want knowledge, if you want wisdom, you find it here. We're subject to his plan. We're subject to his providence. He does with us whatever he wills to accomplish his purpose. If there's one word that defines the life of every single human soul, it is that of providence. Providence guides every one of us. Providence guides every atom of this universe from the moment of its creation onward. In order to capture the essence of divine providence and prerogative, Paul borrows a theme from Isaiah and Jeremiah, this, this notion of the potter and the clay. It's not new to Paul. He borrows an illustration from the Old Testament. And the purpose is to show that God ordains the outcome of every nation and every leader. In fact, uh, he sets them up and he tears them down. He establishes them, he strengthens them, uses them for his own glory. We, we saw that earlier with Pharaoh. We see it with Nebuchadnezzar. It happens today with every leader. It's whomever God determines to raise up and whomever God determines to tear down. As you know, I say virtually nothing about human politics. But I'll tell you this morning, I know who's going to win in the recall. I know, beyond a shadow of a doubt, absolutely certain. I don't know who. Whoever God decides, whomever God has ordained, just like every other leader, it is God who sets them up, it is God who tears them down. And we know that to be the case because he tells us over and over again. And if you look at Isaiah, he talks about Cyrus 
And in Isaiah 45, 9 and 10, we read this. Woe to him who strives with him who formed him, a pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who formed it, what are you making? Says to Cyrus, don't you question me as to why I've elevated you or why you tear me down. It's almost humorous. He says that Cyrus and others are essentially asking, what are you making? Or your work has no handles? Imagine the pot looks up to the potter after it's finished and says, wait, no handles? It's absurd. It's meant to be bordering on absurdity for the purpose of of shock and even humor. How ridiculous. This is what he says to Cyrus. This is why I've set you up, not because you're better than everybody else. Woe to him who says to a father, what are you begetting? Or to a mother, with what are you in labor? He says the child has no decision as to whether or not he is conceived. The child has no decision as to whether or not he is to be born. Imagine a child, unborn, questioning being born. Who dare give birth to me? You're doing the ultrasound. 3D. You focus in on the face. The child looks back and goes, what's going on? I didn't ask for this. It's humid in here. And she keeps eating this stuff. I'm watching it come in. I don't like this. Enough. Absurd. But this, this, this is the, the idea that the, the prophet is saying. That's, that's how ludicrous it is that one would question God in this. He continues and he borrows more from Isaiah 64, 8. But now... O Yahweh, you are our father, we are the clay, you are the potter, we are the work of your hand, Isaiah 64, 8. How about Jeremiah? Through him, O house of Israel, can I not do with you as a potter is done, declares the Lord. Behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. Jeremiah 18, 6. It's easy to accept that God has made some for honor, isn't it? The elect. It's much more difficult, though, for us to accept that he has made some for dishonor. Non-elect. That's a question that's probably swirling around in your mind right now. Let's clarify something. The language is clear that God shapes the lump. He molds the lump doesn't talk about creating this lump for the purpose of destruction. The lump exists. The clay is there. He fashions it. The lump here is representative of all human beings, all humanity that already exist by his divine decree. He knows whom he will exist, whom he will create. He knows who will exist. He knows what will happen. He knows that, that all of humanity will fall that only Adam and Eve were created in that form of innocence and since their fall, every human being has been cursed. Every human being born with a sin nature. The lump of uh, perdition, as Augustine refers to us. It's what God does with that cursed lump that's in question here. And so when we talk about predestination, we have to talk about whether or not 
God predestines those unto glory in exactly the same way that he would predestine others to be passed over. Some will say, well, God predestines some to be saved and the rest he just ignores. Others would say that he predestines some to be saved and others, before in his mind they even existed, he fashioned and created for the sole purpose of populating hell. What I believe the Bible teaches is what theologians would call an asymmetrical understanding of predestination. You have to acknowledge that God predestines some to salvation and and others are predestined to receive the very judgment that he said will come to all who have not believed. But he doesn't do it in the same way. What is similar in everyone is the fact that they are cursed, is the fact that they are fallen, is the fact that they are destined for eternal separation from God. What distinguishes them is that God in his mercy sees fit to predestine some to be chosen by his grace and mercy out of that cursed lump destined for hell and grant them eyes to see and ears to hear and faith to believe, to receive then the righteousness of Christ imputed to them and their sin imputed to Christ. The others, he passes over and in their own hardness hardens them. And so I would appeal to you today with this magnificent truth you have every opportunity to receive salvation as long as you are still alive. That's the only criteria. If you can hear what I'm saying today, I'm calling you to repentance. I'm calling you to faith in Christ. We don't make any judgment about who is determined for what because we know that until the very last moment of a person's life, There is a desire on the part of God, as he has said, that all would come to a knowledge of the truth and be saved. Every week I look down at this brass plaque on the pulpit that says, Sir, we would see Jesus. And I am reminded that every sermon is a sermon dipped in the very blood of Christ, as it were, and presented to those who hear as a message to you to yield and to find your rest in him. You don't know. And you don't have any idea what is going on in the heart of any person. And so you call each one with equal passion that they might turn and believe. That is the providence of God. The second point is the patience of God. We see that in verses 22 to 24. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for the vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. This last part is an almost rhetorical question, but it's also sincere. The words what if are are essentially a rebuke to the one questioning God. You could translate this What's it to you? What if God has a plan for his own wrath and power? What if he's waiting to put that on display? Who are we to question that? There are two vessels mentioned here. There are are two kinds of people. There are 
Some that are prepared for destruction and some that are prepared for glory. And we need to understand that this is not the only place in Scripture where where Paul sees fit to unpack this doctrine. It is called the, the doctrine of perdition. It's a doctrine that those who are in their sin are destined for eternal separation from God, that they are, are actively living out their enslaved will to do sin. That it's the nature of their character. That is what they are. And that's what every one of us was as well until God rescued us. Nobody is neutral. Nobody is born a clean slate. We're going to speak at length about this next week. And you're going to see that we should be thankful for debate. We should be thankful for theologians who write heresy. Because it always causes theologians who know truth to rise up and more clearly articulate a defense of the faith. There wouldn't be an Augustine if there weren't a Pelagius. There wouldn't really be a Luther if there weren't an Erasmus. There, there wouldn't be a, a Calvin if there weren't an Arminius. There, there needs to be a constant tension between error and truth. And much of the doctrine that we're talking about here is going to be unfolded for us in more detail next week. But, but allow me to introduce it in the minutes that we have left. What's the, the biblical basis for the understanding of vessels destined for destruction? I'm going to give you several texts. Daniel 12, verse 10 says, Many shall purify themselves and make themselves white and be refined, but the wicked shall act wickedly. Why do people act wickedly? They act wickedly because they're wicked. They're not wicked because they act wickedly. Right? When I was a kid, that was a term we used to use to describe something as being cool. We would say, that's wicked. I know we don't use that anymore, but now we say things are sick. I'm learning. This is sick. In a good way. Psalm 81.12 says, so I gave them over to what? To their stubborn hearts to follow their own counsels. They're they're already stubborn. They're already following their own counsel. So I gave them over to it. I didn't create them this way. I didn't make their warm hearts stubborn. I I didn't make their good counsel bad. I Left them in it, he says. Proverbs 1, 24 to 27. Why do we read Proverbs to our children? Why should we read Proverbs every day? Because it's a constant reminder of the battle of the flesh. He says, Proverbs 1, 24 to 27. Because I have called and you refuse to listen. I've stretched out my hand and no one is heeded. Because you have ignored all my counsel and would have none of my reproof. I also will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when terror strikes you when... Terror strikes you like a storm and your calamity comes like a whirlwind when distress and anguish come upon you. Jesus says in John 5.40, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. You refuse to come to me. 2 Thessalonians 2, 9-12 
The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing. Why is the man of lawless coming, lawlessness coming? He is coming with all of his deception and wickedness in order to appeal to those who are already perishing because they have already refused to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion the already delusional, the ones who have already rejected and refused. He says, in your refusal, in your rejection, I will seal you in it with a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe in the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. At the end of the end of the end, Revelation twenty-two eleven, this chilling declaration is made. Let the evildoer still do evil and the filthy still be filthy and the righteous still do right and the holy still be holy. You see, until the very end, there is that pattern. And yet God in his mercy, if he sees fit, will rescue that person in their refusal, in their darkness, in their desire to to sin and be unrighteous and turn them just like he did Saul into Paul, Jacob into Israel, and you into the new creation that you are today if you are in Christ. Isn't it glorious, folks, that he's patient with vessels of wrath? Aren't you grateful that he was patient with you? Aren't you gracious? People say, why would God be gracious with these vessels of wrath? Why would he be patient? My answer is, he is patient with everyone long enough that if they are chosen by him, they will hear the gospel and be saved. And that's why every single time I have the opportunity, I remind you of that. If you're here today and you haven't yet put your faith in Christ, today is the day of salvation. And I pray that he has preserved you up until this very moment so that you can hear it one more time and soften your heart and receive it. Because I also see in Scripture that there comes a point in time where he hardens that heart and it is sealed in its rebellion. Just like Pharaoh. He is patient with the vessels of wrath. He allows them to abuse his common grace until the time that he gets glory from their judgment. In the context of the passage here, he is patient with rebellious Israel even though she had every blessing, every opportunity. But I would remind you today that his patience does not nullify his desire to see men saved. In fact, he uses the temporary hardening of Israel, as we'll see in chapter 10 and chapter 11. He uses their, their temporary hardening as an opportunity for the gospel to go to the Gentiles, to graft them in and make them equal participants in the covenant. God doesn't lie. Ezekiel 18.32 for I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord. So turn and live. 1 Timothy 2.4, God desires all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. Beloved, hell was created for the rebellious angels and their leader, Satan. It was not created with the intention of fashioning men and women to feed its flames. So on the one hand, we have no seat at the table when it comes to mapping out God's plan for his own glory. Who are you to reply against God? You don't get to ask why. There are many elements of his providence and his patience that we might never understand. 
But this is where faith and his holiness and his justice are tested. And that's where true believers come out the other side in peace. (laughs) Utterly settled in their confidence in the goodness and the righteousness of God. From there we'll launch into our understanding of the next section. But by way of application, let me reinforce this truth to you by looking at three things in review. The why, the how, and the when of divine providence. The why, the how, and the when. The why is the question we're not allowed to ask. We start with that one. The why is the question we don't ask. We, we don't impugn God's character as to why he chose some and not others. We, we certainly don't say, well, it's not fair for you to not choose somebody. If we're going to start anyway, anywhere, Sarah, say it's not fair for you to have chosen anyone. It's certainly not fair for you to have chosen me. You had to make it fair and make it just by punishing Christ instead and paying through his sacrifice the full weight of the wrath that should have fallen on me. We don't ask the why. It's not a partnership with unbelievers in the sense that they, by their own free will, decide to follow Jesus and then Jesus, by his kindness, meets them halfway. The second thing that we looked at here was the how. How does he do this? We said that he takes from that lump of unbelievers, from that lump of fallen humanity, from all of the children of Adam that was explained to us back in Romans 5, he takes from that lump some that were already destined for hell, were they not redeemed, and he redeems some of them. But he does not redeem them in predestined election in an identical way to which he would predestined the others to judgment. The others are already on their way to judgment and they instead are merely sealed by him actively, nevertheless, in their rebellion. And the third question is the when of all of this and this is where the water gets very, very deep. Uh, This is where you not only can't touch the bottom but you can't see the bottom. The when of the divine counsels of God. The when of before the foundation of the world. The when of before creation. The when of divine decree where somehow within the Trinitarian union there was a decision made to create all that is created including all of the people and all of their lives and all the intersections that occur during that life and all of their ultimate destinies. The knowledge of every day before one even occurred. And when we back up into that area, our minds would just explode were we to try to grasp and hold all of the knowledge necessary to apprehend it. It really is something that belongs to God and God alone. But let me leave you with this. The only thing that we can say that is most consistent with God's character as revealed in Scripture is that God ordained to create the world. God ordained then that sin for his own purposes would enter it. That Adam and Eve would fall and that mankind would be cursed. And then from that cursed lump, some would be chosen. We believe that to be consistent with the character of God. 
I'll go into more detail next week on that, but the alternative is what some would call a hyper-Calvinism, which is to suggest that God ordained the creation of souls for no purpose other than to condemn them to hell. What we depart with today is the great truth that should be echoing throughout this message and all others in this series, that God in his mercy has said that all who have ears to hear, let them hear the truth of the gospel. And so as weighty as these matters have been, as challenging as these texts are, as, as, as incomprehensible as they would appear to be, he does not leave us stranded and hopeless. He reminds us of his character. I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord God. So turn and live because he desires all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. May those who have ears to hear, hear the teaching of God's word. Father in heaven, we thank you for the opportunity that we've had today to wade into this massive truth. Thank you for the patience of the congregation today, for their attention and for their labor to understand and to follow these things. I pray that you will have been merciful to us, to both preacher and congregation alike. We don't take lightly these matters and we don't treat them with casual, a casual nature. Instead, we understand that you are telling us something that is so profound that it is quite literally beyond our ability to understand. And so I ask that we would come away not overwhelmed or discouraged or bored, but that we would come away in awe, reminding ourselves that you are God and we are not, that your ways are beyond ours and your thoughts are beyond ours. And frankly, your will is beyond ours. May we come away with nothing but a deep and abiding confidence in your justice and in your mercy and in your amazing grace that would save a wretch like me, save other wretches today for your glory. And all God's people said, Amen.